0: today on the podcast, what happens when a lawyer gets dementia? What happens when a lawyer doesn't know they have dementia? What happens when a lawyer refuses to acknowledge they have dementia? And what happens to their clients? Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the new legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So I'm going to start off today's episode by throwing some numbers at you. First, more than one out of every nine people over the age of 65 is living with Alzheimer's dementia. Second, there are more than 160,000 practicing lawyers over the age of 65, a 50% increase from a decade ago. So the combination of these two data points would seem to indicate we're going to see a lot more lawyers in the future be affected with Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. And yet, bar associations, the groups that are supposed to ensure that all attorneys are able to represent their clients competently, don't really have a good way of addressing this when it happens. That's according to recent reporting from Holly Barker, a reporter with Bloomberg Law. Holly spoke to an associate who knew her solo practitioner boss simply couldn't practice anymore, but couldn't find a way to stop him before his clients suffered serious consequences. Holly joins On the Merits today to talk about this case and about why... If you're a solo practitioner or you work at a small firm, you might want to think about creating a living will of sorts for your practice. But first, Holly goes into what exactly cognitive impairment actually is.
1: So dementia refers to a collection of symptoms. So it's, it's characterized by memory loss, difficulty communicating, like struggling to find the right words, difficulty problem solving, planning, organizing, handling complex tasks. Um, It can cause confusion and disorientation and problems with motor functions and coordination eventually. Alzheimer's is a specific kind of dementia uh, and the most common. Uh, The disease affects people mostly over 65, and it's responsible for something like 70% of all dementia cases.
0: Well, uh, the main thing I wanted to key in on there is over 65. Uh, So, I mean, this clearly affects people who are older and as you pointed out in your story, a lot of lawyers are working longer and working later on in their lives. So this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem for the profession, right?
1: The necessary inference is that it must be. Uh, for decades, lawyers have been—you know—the number of lawyers working past age sixty-five has increased.
0: Yeah. So I guess we're not talking about the average age of the of a lawyer, you know, getting older. But just that there, the number of lawyers over the age of sixty-five really is increasing, and that means they're more susceptible to dementia, as you just said, and that's a big issue for their clients. Um, you highlighted a lot of um, cases where you know lawyers really did not represent their clients very well, unfortunately because of their disease.
1: The scary thing about it, from from sort of a professional pro- for the profession, is in the early stages of dementia, even when it's interfering with sort of your executive functioning and your ability to really get the job done right, you can still sort of fake it a little bit because you can tap into years of learning and and uh, what one of my sources referred to as cognitive reserves. And it's essentially, you know, you can automatically recite the elements of a crime. You can tell old war stories. You can sort of, you know, convince people that you're still you're still with it. But where where you start to struggle is when you're trying to sort of organize your day and apply your existing knowledge to a new set of facts and make inferences and all the, all the things that are so sort of critical uh, to doing your job.
0: Yeah, it's a, the progressive nature of the disease, I think, is is probably what makes it so hard to, to deal with for attorneys in particular, so you, as I mentioned, you talked about a lot of uh, instances of lawyers with cognitive decline or with dementia, but let, the the main one that you really followed from beginning to end was Robert Fritchall. Um, he was an attorney uh, in, uh, I believe, the Chicago area. Tell me about him and tell me about the situation that he ran into.
1: So, so he his practice was mostly workers' comp and personal injury. Uh, he had been a well respected member of his legal community for decades. Uh, he was the prosecuting attorney for Skokie for a while. He was an arbitrator. He'd even been president of the North Suburban Bar Association. But by the time he'd been practicing for over 50 years and he was about 80 years old, um, he was in decline. And he was a solo practitioner. Uh, he had uh, an intern, a legal secretary, and I think that's it. Uh, and he'd had you know associates that had cycled in and cycled out uh, in the later years, but I mean, they were there for some of them just weeks. And then it wasn't until uh, Bethany McLean joined his practice in 2010 that she really recognized that something was, was wrong. And she recognized something was wrong because his his client cases were, he, he was obviously unable to manage them. I mean, he was missing deadlines. He couldn't get back. He was unaware that some of his cases had been dismissed for failure to prosecute. In one instance, he negotiated a settlement and then sort of forgot about it. Bethany didn't think that any of his cases hadn't been affected.
0: Wow. Yeah. And I mean, one of the sadder details of uh, this story that you wrote, and there are a lot of sad details, uh, is that some of the other attorneys who were on the other sides of these cases thought that his missing deadlines or his not responding was a negotiating tactic, that that was him just trying to, you know, throw them off their game, and, and they didn't realize what was really happening with Fritchall, right?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Um, so as you mentioned, uh, Bethany McLean was hired on, and she realized that, you know, something was very wrong. Eventually, she spoke out. Uh, and who did she go to?
1: So her first contact was the Illinois Lawyer Assistance Program, um, which is, is is like a confidential resource that you can go to for help. Uh, that isn't sort of the state bar's disciplinary arm. Uh, And unfortunately, she hit a wall there. Uh, They just they didn't seem to her to have any sort of resources or protocol in place for dealing with this set of circumstances for cognitive decline due to dementia.
0: Right. I mean, she I think she told you it would have been easier had he been a drug addict. Like that, that sums, it all, it sums it all up, that the legal profession is, you know, much more able to deal with people whose personal life is in decline due to drug abuse than po- cognitive decline.
1: That's right. And, I, and I, at the time, I mean, I think only 30 state lawyer assistance programs even ostensibly had resources for cognitive decline. And even then, they weren't very sophisticated. It's a much more difficult problem to diagnose. And there are a few sort of well-developed resources in the community that are low-cost and accessible. So it's, it, it was just more difficult for them to tackle and just not something that they were as sensitive to, at least at the time.
0: Yeah. So what did Bethany McLean do, do next?
1: So she eventually started calling the Illinois Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission's ethics hotline basically to ask them for guidance and she again she sort of hit a wall there too Uh, and and at that point sort of her only option short of just bailing was to to reach out to the disciplinary commission and file a formal complaint uh and that's ultimately what she did and and this was really truly her last resort this is not you know how she wanted to handle the situation and she had talked to Robert about it directly, but she said it, the word she used was aloof. I mean, he just, he sort of didn't, he didn't recognize the issue and he didn't sort of see the issue she was identifying as like terribly serious.
0: So she had to go through this really formal disciplinary process to to get this issue addressed. Um, ultimately, what happened in the end?
1: So there was eventually a hearing um, in the summer of 2012. So her complaint I think was filed it's September of twenty ten and and he denied it and there and, and there was some back and forth and he was asking for extensions. Uh, and some and sometime during the intervening period he actually he sold his practice. His wife was a, his power of attorney and, and he moved he moved to Wisconsin. Um so by the time of the hearing he wasn't actively practicing anymore. Uh then, you know, a while after the hearing the the hearing board issued its report and it recommended that he be placed on disability inactive status. Uh, and and the Supreme Court issued that order a few months later. Um, so while he wasn't an active practice at the time, you know, it's it's a shame for his legacy.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, he passed away shortly after that, right?
1: He did, yeah, in 2015.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that was one of the biggest takeaways I got from your story, is that it seems like there needs to be... A, uh, another way to deal with this situation that is only going to become more common, you know, short of taking formal disciplinary actions against an attorney uh, who's at, you know, at the end of their career or toward the end of their career. Um, what are the options for people like Bethany McLean, you know, in the future, what, will, will they have a different experience than she did?
1: Hopefully. Um, so I, a lot of state bar programs have come a really long way, uh, Illinois included. So their executive director now is a woman named Diana Uchiyama. And she is, incidentally, um, not just a lawyer, but also a forensic and clinical psychologist. And so she is very sensitive to this issue. They're tackling the issue, I think, really proactively uh, now. Um, Not all state bars are the same. I think what most LAP programs try to do is once they get a call is that they'll try to enlist family members and colleagues in the community to sort of basically stage an intervention. Um, But hopefully it doesn't come to that because hopefully you've got, you know, colleagues in your practice who will intervene more directly uh before that the the onus really shouldn't fall on lap programs um and and part of this is is individuals sort of planning ahead and taking responsibility i think and maybe making a commitment to themselves um to sort of if they if they're if they're solo in a solo practice for example you know have a peer group that you check in with and like commit you know while you're still with it enough to sort of do this
0: yeah almost almost like a an advanced directives for your own practice
1: I mean exactly like it's it's such a dark way to think about it, but yeah, um i mean it's it's um I think larger you know larger law firms and bigger institutions they sort of they have the scaffolding in place to kind of make sure that things don't go terribly sideways. Before the issue gets dealt with, I really think it's a it's a it's a harder lift um, for people who are sort of operating as islands.
0: Yeah, the solo practitioners. You know, but the stakes are high. I mean, even if you're not working on criminal cases, which is a whole other can of worms. I mean, you still have clients who you know have these legal issues that you're you know the the clients may think that you're advocating for them, and and you may not be able to. So. Um, you know, it's it's not the the lawyers themselves are not the only ones affected here.
1: Absolutely not, and you're and, you, and you're right. It has serious implications for the justice system because it's not like it's isolated um, to civil litigation. And it, and it's, you know, the integrity of the professions at stake.
0: One of the the last things I wanted to ask you about is it seems like um, you mentioned sort of reforms that some state bars are taking. One of the things was. Uh, A a sort of voluntary retirement uh, option where if there's an attorney who has had some complaints filed against them, they can it sounded like they could take, uh, you know, a voluntary retirement and have those complaints wiped out as long as they agreed to stop practicing
1: Yeah, that's right. and, and I'm you know I, do, I haven't done a 50 state survey so I can't tell you that all states have it. I know that many of them do, but it, there's, it's basically a diversionary process so that if complaints do come into the disciplinary arm it, that, that's they don't necessarily have to move forward with disciplinary action if the attorney will sort of agree to, to exit the profession gracefully and to just retire their license permanently. Um, but but, you know, you've got you've got to get their buy in on that. And the other thing is, by the time it's gotten to the disciplinary commission, it's sort of it's kind of too late. Like it, it things shouldn't get that serious, um, you know, before you throw in the towel.
0: The last thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I, I'm assuming you talked with uh, Bethany quite a bit for this story. Do you get the sense that she kind of regrets what she did?
1: Uh, no, she doesn't. Um, she it was. She said it was the scariest experience of of her professional life, and um, you know it was really frustrating at the time. I think. I mean, her only regret is that there there weren't sort of better resources and an alternative way to tackle the situation.
0: Yeah. All right, well, uh, Holly Barker is a reporter on our legal intelligence desk. Holly, thank you so much for the story, first of all, and thank you also for coming on this podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, with special help from Bernie Cohn. Our editor is Jessica Coombs and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLAW. That's at B-Law, with B as in Bloomberg. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.
1: Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast... Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.